how do you incent the right behavior? And and even so, kind of looking at what what is a true success outcome for a salesperson. And for a salesperson, many would say, oh, well, quota attainment is the, is the ultimate success measure. And, and I think there's a little bit of argument there because you can have a sales rep that hits quota. That doesn't necessarily mean that they're happy. And that could go along with a paycheck. It could go along with other factors when you start looking at intrinsic values of what employees want in a job. Hi there. Welcome to On The Flip Side, a podcast for anyone who wants to live their best sales life. We're going to be talking to buyers, sales managers, SDRs, and A's about things like, what does it take to be a great sales manager? Or how can you go home happy month after month? So let's dive right in. Hey, Ed, really good to have you here on the flip side. How are you doing today? Great. Excited to be talking about this. I've been following along with Wingman for a little bit as you've been going. And now that you've got this podcast talking about some of these issues, I I wanted to raise my hand and see where I could help because I love good debate. Awesome. So we are going to have a good debate with Ed today. And, you know, of course, before we get started, I would love to hear what was the first thing you ever sold? Yeah, so I, I could kind of go back to the, my first job was I worked in the, spent some time in the outsourced contact center space. And one of the accounts that I managed at the time was doing inbound calls, very transactional. We were selling calling card, international calling cards. This is really dating myself back into like <laughs> the early 2000s, but we were selling international calling cards. The company was providing VoIP technology in traditional calling cards. So they were actually the first of its kind. And our goal was, was simply to convert incoming calls. So I was managing the team, but I thought it was relevant that I get on the phone and do and do the job as well. So as we learned this, that was what I was selling. So our goal was to educate a customer. People would call in from an ad. The company would advertise on radio advertisements. They would do advertisements in magazines, Time Magazine, Fortune, Newsweek, and, and then as well as on the website. So we would handle calls. I would generally get on the phone when an ad dropped. The radio ads kind of caused an instant spike. So anytime a radio ad came, I was getting on the phone and that was kind of what we were selling. So at that time, you know, if I look back then to where I am now, I was was terrible. I was absolutely terrible. But I was operating from a perspective of I'm trying to sell you, not trying to help you make a buying decision. And there's a difference between the two. So it was very much self-centered back then. And I was operating simply on a conversion on a quota. So that was the first thing I sold was, was calling card minutes with certain rechargeable features of on an account. And that was the first thing I sold back then. And I was, again, that was probably like early 2000s. I'm really amazed you said it was a very self-centered kind of process in, in the sales cycle. Uh, aren't all salespeople supposed to be self-centered? <laughs> you know, interestingly enough, this is kind of the difference between how you structure your sales team or your or how your sales team sells is I'm very much a believer in a buyer-centered model. And that goes in a couple of different ways. One, in terms of product development, you're trying to figure out who's your buyer, who's your user, how are you building solutions to problems that they're experiencing? And I feel the same is true on the sales sales side. So if you're truly centered on the buyer, every conversation with a buyer is based on understanding about their role, what 
what's in their scope or their realm of control and what problems they're experiencing and can a solution help solve that problem. So it's very much, I have no assumption of, of things until I ask those questions and then ultimately try and find out, well, yeah, I either can help or I can't. And if I can't, I don't want to sell you on a reason why I can. And that's where I think that the shift is becoming is if you're really operating from a buyer-centric mentality, you're trying to figure out if this is a solution to a buyer's problem, or is it a band-aid, or is it something where I'm going to have to stretch? So I think there's a difference now, and I don't know what the market was like way back then, 15, 20 years ago of you know sales companies, but now I see a lot about buyer-centered motivation, buyer-centered processes, and how do you align your company to your buyer your product to your buyer? How does marketing align to the buyer and sales and so on? So that's where I would say the difference is, is I don't think it's as self-centered, or at least I think the attitude or the behavior isn't as self-centered as it should be, as long as it's aligned to the, the buyer that you're speaking with. And do you kind of recall a point in time where you where that perspective changed for you? Because, you know, if you think of a 20-something-year-old uh, doing their first or second sales gig, you know, the, the thing that they're constantly hearing is you're getting measured on the quota that you're meeting, right? And, you know, people are competing with each other on the commission checks that they're getting. I don't see them competing on how biocentric they were, uh, right? Or how empathetic they were. So how did that perspective change for you? Yeah, that really changed really when I started kind of focusing a lot on my own. As a leader, I was focusing on my own kind of development. How do I build better teams, better cultures, better comp plans? And I started down this path of trying to find external content. And that came probably around 2011, 2012. I was in a position where I was working for a company building an inside sales team for a large field sales organization. And they didn't really know what they wanted, which was why they hired me. And I kind of, I, I didn't want to make any preconceived notions or assumptions on how to build a team or what they were going to do. So we were selling uh, commoditized products. And when you start looking at selling commoditized products, it's very easy to gravitate towards price to say, oh, well, my price is cheaper. You should buy from me. But there's a lot of differences involved there. So I started looking at how are comp plans built? How are how do you incent the right behavior? And, and even so, kind of looking at what what is a true success outcome for a salesperson? And for a salesperson, many would say, oh, well, quota attainment is the, is the ultimate success measure. And, and I think there's a little bit of argument there because you can have a sales rep that hits quota. That doesn't necessarily mean that they're happy. And that could go along with a paycheck. It could go along with other factors. When you start looking at intrinsic values of what employees want in a job. And, and I in college, I wrote a dissertation on this on employee turnover, specifically in the contact center. So I learned a lot about intrinsic and extrinsic types of rewards, what works towards motivation, what mo works towards job satisfaction. So things like that, comp, pay are extrinsic and those are actually uncorrelated to job satisfaction and happiness. So when you start measuring salespeople, obviously the context is output, but how do you align that to an input? And an input can be how a salesperson connects with the right prospect. So it's easy to tell a salesperson, hey, go out and sell this product to anybody that has this title in any industry. And maybe there's half a million people that do that. So how do you start and go in real focused? And that's going to involve a lot of different things. The right salesperson, or I should say the right sales leader will work and build this into their sales operation is to try and understand who is the ideal customer profile for us. What are these buyer personas? Who all is involved in a buying decision? 
What sort of pain points do they suffer from? Does our product or service solve these problems? And let's get all of those done and mapped out first. And then let's go find buyers that look like that. So now we've already started without any real intent. We've already started to operate from a buyer-centered model. So we're already coming up with these descriptors to go do it. And that's ultimately what you're trying to do as a salesperson. And actually, I just talked to somebody a couple of days ago who, when they got started in sales around the same time, early 2000s, he was in a financial services company. He knew nothing about it. And he plopped himself in front of CNBC for six hours, learning as much as he could. And that's how he started optimizing his outreach, who he was going to go after, what he was going to talk about, how he could align his messaging to what he's learned. So now that's what he was doing. So that's where I would say that the shift becomes, if you want this output to be better, whether it's quote attainment, higher paycheck, let's figure out the inputs that are going to get you there as quick as possible. And then you start working towards that there should be a success measure there. If you're constantly succeeding, that's better for the mentality. Hopefully, if you're constantly succeeding, you're being rewarded more. So that's helping you pay for another house, get married, have a child, whatever the case may be in those life events. Hopefully that gets you there a lot quicker. So that's the kind of shift that I try to employ. You know, one thing that I realized is when we actually are given an opportunity to sit on the other side of the table, right? Whether that is, even if you were as a seller, you know, if you've been selling for like a few months and then you suddenly find yourself in a position where you are a buyer, it suddenly dawns on you that you make all these mistakes that the seller now is making for you. And that just is so much more impactful than uh, anything that I might have learned from books or anything that I might have told uh, my salespeople. And so I'll be curious to hear what your perspective is. Like one of the things that I uh, try and get my sales reps to do is experience being a buyer. Uh, So if there's a tool that we are evaluating, I'll probably get them to take the demo, take the discovery calls, and then they will share notes with me on what they felt during that process. And that's probably more educational for them because then they can connect with the emotions of the buyer so much more than they might have if I told them. People can see through it if you say this or this is a band-aid and not a solution like you said but I think we got ahead of ourselves because the conversation was so interesting would love to actually get our guests our audience to hear about your background because I know it's very different you spoke a little bit about the call center world and you've had uh, some very interesting journey so why don't you tell us a little bit about how that journey went for you from running that call center team to where you are today yeah so that was that was really my first job I, I started in the contact center working as a representative part-time while I was going to college So for me, it was just a job. And then I found myself eight years later running multiple call center locations and having over a thousand people reporting up to me. And I was in my mid twenties at the time. So it was very much sink or swim. It was very much, there wasn't a whole lot of training. It was go figure it out. And and that was an environment that I found myself thriving in. So I, I loved it. Looking back on it, I think that's where I was able to make a lot of great life decisions in terms of what I liked and what I didn't like. So I grew up in that outsourced contact center space and people that I met there, we all worked at that company. They started a call recording software company and they used it in the center where we were, where we worked. And then eventually they branched out and went on their own. And so when they started, they, they brought me in and, and it was really interesting because at that point I really knew nothing about software sales. I knew nothing about kind of the competitive landscape, but I was a user. So I was a director in the call center. We used call call center recording technology. I had used several different types. So I had a perspective of 
I know what I liked and what I didn't like. I knew how to use these these recording systems to help train, onboard, and develop the call center teams. So their thought was, hey, you'd be great to help us launch our partner channel. And again, we kind of go back into where it's like sink or swim. And it was me trying to learn up, learn about what is distribution selling? What are resellers, telecom resellers? How do they make money? What's important to them? So I had to learn that myself, but I had the insight where I could go to these resellers to say, hey, you're working on reselling phone technology, PBX systems, data networking, voice networking solutions. Let us be part of your portfolio when you're working with contact centers. So, and then I can provide that insight from a user so that they could then sell that product to the contact center leader or the customer service leader. So that's where I kind of cut my teeth in building a team. I learned a lot about resellers and distribution and channel sales in that in that regard. And I was able to leverage a lot of the experience I had before to building that team and and growing that as a revenue source for the company. So from there, I left to, I was recruited to go build, like I said earlier, an inside sales team for a large field sales company. And they were at the, they were a manufacturer and distri- distributor. So I had a little bit of that experience before as a manufacturer selling through distribution. And they didn't really know if this was going to be more of a call center type of operation or more of a kind of remote sales operation. So they didn't really know, but they wanted somebody to figure out. And since I had a little bit of experience in both, that was their that was their reason for hiring me. So at that point it was building a team from scratch and, and then starting to figure out, you know, hiring profiles. Who do we hire? What are we going to have them do? What kind of customers are we going to go target and how we're going to go do it? So through that eight years, it was very much uh grassroots and trial and error. And that's where I really learned a lot about marketing, sales, and customer service all at all in one because our sales reps did all of it. They had to do their own prospecting, they did their own selling, and they did their own effectively account management. So they were responsible for customers selling more and more products. They were often the point of contact for a customer when there was a problem. If they got a bad delivery or damaged items or had issues with something, they were often the conduit between the, the customer and, and solving the problem. So we had to really learn a lot about all three of those functions. How do we market effectively? How do we use e-blasts? How do we, how do we target and use precision marketing to try and find customer types that we want to appeal to? How do we figure out how to sell 30,000 different products to a single customer? That was the hardest, was selling over and over again. So that was a great experience in many regards that really helped on my journey to understand this thing about inside sales, what is it and how it works. That's how I got indoctrinated to AAISP, the American Association of Inside Sales Professionals. I attribute a lot of where I am today to connections that I've made with them, both as a leadership team, as well as people that are part of that community. I'm a chapter leader in Columbus for the AAISP local chapter. So it's something I'm very passionate about. But it was a great learning experience for me and opened my eyes to a lot of a lot of new things. And it became kind of my core development area that I would start to, to seek development for. So I did that for eight years, then got recruited to a company to go be the chief revenue officer to ultimately lead them, that company to acquisition. They had, they wanted to get acquired. They didn't know how or when, or but they just know that they had 
They had some previous opportunities in in downtick and revenue and customer usage, so they wanted to change it. And if that meant selling in a year, three years, five years, they just wanted to get a good story and build that better valuation. So I came in and as the chief revenue officer, and within nine, 10 months, we wound up selling the company to a competitor at a decent valuation. So it was, overall, it was pretty successful. It was a good learning experience for me. It was working for a SaaS type of company that sold to small businesses. And when you're selling to a small business owner, there are certainly a lot of intricacies there that are involved in understanding why they buy, what they buy, and and starting to and access because they're often the ones doing a lot of other different jobs than just leading their own company. So I did that. And, and then this gave me the opportunity to kind of go out on my own and figure out what I wanted to do. So for almost the past two years, I've been on my own marketing myself more as a fractional chief revenue officer and starting to work with companies, more so smaller companies, less than 10 million that are really looking at aligning their, the revenue organization, what that means to growth and acceleration. And then also kind of debunking the myths of when do you hire leaders? Sometimes companies make make the mistake of hiring a leader too early. There's a stat out there that says VP of sales turnovers like 13, 16, 18 months, depending on what you read. And that to me is alarming. And I think there's a good part of that to say companies are hiring too early and ultimately investing in a high powered resource and not getting a whole lot of return because hiring a VP doesn't turn your revenue overnight. It takes a while to bake, and sometimes you don't have the cash flow to support that. So that's what I've tried to do a lot with companies that I work with is to educate them on when to pull the trigger on certain hires. Do you need an individual contributor or leader? What type of individual contributor? How do you go to market with marketing messaging and value mapping to pains? How do you carry that from marketing to sales? And then how do you support your customer? Are you continuing to solve problems that they initially told you they had? How are you creating pulse checks on customer success? So it's taking all three of those powerful departments, making sure that they're aligned and working with companies to get that aligned and then be able to get them to points where they can hire leaders and and grow the company. Interesting. And we'll definitely come back to the fractional CRO bit because I'm very intrigued by that. But there's something interesting you said, right? You've worked with uh, selling to SMBs and you said that's interesting, but I kind of also hear that that's somewhat tougher. The way I think about it is if you had to get $1 out of somebody who had $10, uh, it's much harder than getting $100 out of somebody who had like uh, $100,000. And you've kind of done the entire range, right? Uh, call center type of B2C selling, enterprise selling, selling for the manufacturing sector and selling for SaaS. Curious, the call center, it's a very different world from B2B uh, tech sales, or is it? You know, it can be. So when I, when back when I was selling the, the call recording platform, it was, it wasn't SaaS. It was all like you were buying the license. On-prem. It was, it was, yeah, it was on-prem license. It wasn't term. It was so that's that's a lot different. Now we were selling maintenance programs on top of it, which was really recurring revenue. But ultimately, you were buying a license, 500, 800 bucks per license per user, and they owned it. So you got a lot higher spend. You were you were pulling generally from a capex budget as opposed to an operational budget. So a lot of times we had to get in the CFOs. They they had to be part of the discussion, and often the CEO, depending on the size of company. So, so that was a challenge when you're selling CapEx, but the difference is if I could, if I knew now what I, or if I knew then what I knew now, I would approach this whole process a lot differently because you can start to appeal to different people 
a lot easier. So when you start looking at like what's easier and what's harder, I think it really all comes down to how commoditized your product is. Do you have to sell the need for your product or do you just have to sell the difference between your product? That's step one. Selling a new category or selling something brand new is significantly harder in many cases than selling another option. So in call recording, we were generally selling another option because people were inevitably recording already. So getting access to the buyers became you know, a challenge in terms of how do we get there? And then how do we create messaging that aligns to it? So I think it's less about easier or harder and more about just kind of taking that approach of who's the buyer or who's the buying committee? What are their roles? What do they care about versus not care about? For instance, I'm never going to pitch to a CFO why this is a great product for users because the CFO doesn't care. CFO cares about this is money. How is this going to help my business? And or simply like what you said is if I'm going to pull from budget A and put it into budget B, is this a better investment? So I'm not going to pitch those things to CFO. Likewise, for a user of the a contact center leader or even a supervisor who's using that recording software, I'm not going to pitch to them anything about cost. It's just irrelevant. They don't care. They're not going to make a buying decision on cost. So it becomes that just becomes a little bit more of the dynamic is aligning your messaging to the right person and understanding what that person does and what do they care about. And then how do you make sure that this is a viable option for them in order to move forward? So in your scenario with the small business owner, small business owner generally is everything and everyone. So they're they're at times answering the phone for their business. They're at times you're selling to a roofing contractor. They're on the roof and you call them and it's like, hey, I can't talk right now because I'm on the roof trying to replace this this customer's roof. They're also the one paying bills, investing in technology. They're they're doing the design for their business card. So they're really doing everything. So now it becomes time optimization where money isn't as much of an obstacle as much as it is time. So how do I get time on their calendar? How do I get time to, to have a conversation? Because the money side of it may be secondary to that. So that becomes a little bit more complicated in terms of easier or harder one or the other, and it becomes more avenues of access. One of the things uh, that you see as a trend today, of course, is more people trying to enter into uh, SaaS sales or tech sales, right? And they're coming in from uh, different spaces, right? Like they might have had a contact center type of experience, or they might have had an experience in a more traditional industry as a field salesperson, maybe pharma uh, or manufacturing. I have two questions there. One is, if you had to give advice to those people who are trying to make that jump as a salesperson, uh, trying to get into tech sales from other segments. You know, what do you think is something that they can do to make themselves more marketable? And I guess the second thing is, what would your advice be to sales leaders in tech sales who, of course, want to hire uh, more talent and there is always uh, paucity for good talent, but are hesitant to maybe bring in people uh, from other sectors? Do you think that it those do those tr- the skills actually translate well uh, or are they a baggage yeah so wow i can i can debate on this topic for a very long time i'm very passionate about it too i don't know if you knew that but i've been commenting on a I few didn't. linkedin okay wonderful well, i've been commenting <laughs> on a few linkedin topics as well as in some slack groups so for one i'll i'll speak to the candidate perspective if you're looking to get into tech sales i'd i'd ask why and i've talked to people before like what's interesting about tech sales or saas sales like is it because that's all the hype right now it's because those are traditionally the fun environments like what's the appeal of wanting to get there and and i want to try and have a conversation about that first so outside of that how do you how do you make yourself more marketable <clears throat> And I'll say today, 
is much different than it was even five years ago, let alone 10 years ago, in terms of networking is, is the best thing that you can do for your career, for, for your knowledge, for your insight. That's why I love the advent of these micro communities that are coming up. LinkedIn is a great platform for a lot of things, but now there's some other communities that are coming. Rev Genius is one, Thursday Night Sales is one. There's one here locally in Columbus. It's the Columbus Startup Community. These are a lot of groups where you can start bringing together lots of people asking questions and getting answers. So it's a great opportunity for 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 a candidate to market themselves, to learn what are people talking about? What are people saying? How can I improve my knowledge? And then ultimately, that's a great opportunity to engage and then use those engagements as connections to people. That's Those are a lot of times how jobs are being filled today. I think it's a little bit, I don't think we're there where job boards aren't aren't important today. They, they are, and I think they still need to exist. But the higher you go up the chain, the less you're getting job applicants from a job posting. Rarely will you see a C-suite position posted, or let alone a company hiring a C-suite position from a job posting. It's usually from a network, and an investor knows someone, or they work with somebody in the past. That's how they're bringing C-suites in. Then you go different levels down below to VP and, and director. So the higher you go up the chain, <clears throat> the less likely is the job's going to come up through a job board. So how do you present yourself? The way you present yourself is getting to know people, engaging with people, being a student to learn and, and be receptive to feedback, and then and then engaging through posts and, and having conversations with people, that's going to help present yourself in the best light. It's not as instant of a, of a solution, but it, it takes a lot longer to bake, but it's certainly one of the most effective. And in fact, in my years, I've applied for one job in my life that I got, and it was the first job when I was 19 years old in the contact center. Every other job, even all the promotions that happen, I never applied. And it's not, I'm not saying anything radical other than it's because of who I know and people that could vouch for my performance. So I got every position from that perspective uh, or perspective up until what I'm doing right now is I've been doing this for almost two years as a fractional CRO. And I've literally just put a website in place like a month ago. And I didn't bother doing it because I had a good referral. And that's how I got a lot of my business over the past almost two years was from was from just people I knew and trying to engage with people. So I'm saying that as a, it's harder to do, but it is essential. And I think that's what's going to pay the biggest dividends is from the candidate experience, how you market yourself is all about who you know, the strength of your network, but it's also about how you're engaging in that. You can't just like connect with 10,000 people and expect people will come to you. You got to put the work in, you got to engage, you got to have an opinion, have thoughts, be willing to learn, engage in debate and conflict. That's going to help set you apart when start when people start to understand your thought process. So that's from the candidate experience, excuse me, not from the company experience. I am very passionate about companies that require industry experience in a job posting because I think think it's irrelevant towards candidate performance. The, the ultimate outcome from, am I, if I'm interviewing candidates, regardless of the position, entry level, individual contributor, all the way up to executive leader, is you could you could have tons of industry experience and still be terrible at your job. You Likewise, you could have no industry experience and be amazing at your job. Because those outliers exist, I need to find ways to prevent them. And that's why I tend to not look at industry experience. In fact, I would also kind of do a stretch to say this, but if you're 
trying to hire industry experience, you probably have a culture issue. And I say that because you're trying to find people that look like you. And, and I think that's problematic when you're trying to get diverse perspectives. You know, you hear diversity in terms of gender, race, religion, and, and you can go a lot of different angles there. But I think the other part of diversity is perspective. And I want perspective from everybody. I want perspective from manufacturing, from distribution, from healthcare, pharma, from, from SaaS, you name it. I want the experience from all these people because I think there's opportunities where I can build diverse perspectives from people outside of my industry. And I want to build the best company or the best team that I possibly can. So from a hiring manager's perspective, I put zero merit into industry experience. And in fact, I would also say that I think people that require industry experience are probably just looking for somebody to ramp up quicker because maybe you don't want to have the time or desire you're growing so quickly. So you don't have the time to ramp people up. Again, that kind of is indicative of a bigger issue. And as it relates to culture to say, well, if you don't have time to ramp people up, do you have time to develop them? Do you have time to develop them to grow into other positions in your company? Or is it just sink or swim? So I'm very passionate about that in terms of experience and SaaS experience, industry experience. I think it's very limiting in perspective and you're simply just trying to hire people just like you. And and I think that's problematic. It looks like I opened a whole can of worms there. <laughs> yes. Uh, I, and literally this is in the past <laughs> week. I think I've commented two or three times on this topic. So it's like, are you stalking me? <laughs> because it's, but it's something I'm very passionate about as well. No, that, that makes a lot of sense. And this has been a great discussion. I have one last question for you as we wind this down. For the role of a CRO, I, I don't know how you'll take this because of course you run a company which has the words fractional CRO in it. But you know, I personally don't know what, how can a CRO role be a fractional role, right? Like, I mean, I feel that even like a salesperson, I feel that they have to be somebody who needs to understand not just the product, not just the customer segment, but the whole landscape. Like they need to understand the business and the company as well as, you know, maybe the CEO. All uh, right. So I'm curious, like how, how do you even make that work? And does that work? Yeah. So this is, this could go two sides to this coin. One is I could be something, I could be doing something completely dumb and I'll be out of a job in, in not long. So I firmly believe in it <clears throat> for a couple of reasons, more so for, for small companies. If you're less than 10 million in revenue, regardless if you're funded or not, every dollar matters and how you invest that dollar and what kind of return you're getting. When you hire a leader whose job is to lead a team, that investment rarely pays off in less than two years. So you're trying to look at this to say, I'm hiring a leader to manage a team to ultimately get that team to perform better so that I can operate under this the real word of what scale means. Scale doesn't just mean grow. Scale means grow without adding resources. So it's it's meant to grow efficiently. So when you're doing that and you're less than $10 million, if I've got $100,000, $200,000 to spare, am I going to hire one leader? Am I going to hire three or four individual contributors? And, and it could very easily be what's going to be what's going to be the biggest bang for my buck in the shortest amount of time. So that's kind of step one is... I believe in allocating a dollar when you're that small into as many individual contributors. This doesn't just mean sales. This means marketing. This means engineering and development. This means customer success. You need to be investing the dollars on the people who can turn the most. Then when you get to that point, whether you've got an influx in investment, or you've got a great pipeline that's coming down the, the pipe, now you can start looking at forward investing. Cash flow is huge whether you're funded or not, you've got to keep an eye on that. So how do you build cash flow projections into 12 and 24 months ahead to be able to afford a pretty high six-figure salary for a VP level 
or even a director level, it's really tough to stomach. <clears throat> so that's at the director VP level, let alone now we're at the C-suite. So the CRO is a title that is starting to get a lot more popularity recently, also being mis misnamed. So there's a lot of chief revenue officer titles that just run sales, and that's not a chief revenue officer. There's, there's chief revenue officers that just run sales and marketing. Again, not a chief revenue officer. If that person doesn't own the full buyer life cycle from awareness to nurturing, to ongoing retention upsell, then, then they don't own revenue. <clears throat> so when you look at a position like that in a company that's less than $10 million, it doesn't make sense to hire a CRO for two, 300,000 bucks a year to, to go run those things. Because again, it's a substantial part of your of your money, of your revenue that's being invested in one leader that needs to be broken down to probably one or two levels below. So why a fractional like myself makes sense is because smaller companies can take advantage of that knowledge and insight where instead of paying two, 300,000 bucks a year, you wind up paying 1,000, 2,000, 5,000 bucks a month for, for something shorter term where you don't need a CRO for 40 hours a week. You need a CRO for maybe five. And then you have other leaders that can do the work and then you become an advisor to those leaders or an advisor to the CEO. So that's where I think fractional CRO leaders make sense. And part of my job is to help educate people's, people of what a CRO is. And this is where I'm, I'm immensely appreciative of people that I've learned from, external content that's out there, people writing about what a CRO does, what aligning an organization means, because that's how I've learned a lot about what I do right now is what is everyone else saying? It's less about what I think or what I care about. What is everybody else saying and doing? So when, when CROs get hired, when they're too small, it just becomes an ineffective hire. You wind up overpaying for a role that you don't need right now, or you expect that role to do work that's a level below. So you're either overpaying for the job or under underperforming on the results they're expected to gain. So it becomes this great opportunity to for a CEO to bite off a little bit of experience where they can have kind of more of this advisor to help build and then where they can focus all of their money on individual contributors and then frontline leaders and build that infrastructure. And then as you get to 10 million, then it becomes important to start looking. And I would even say maybe in the right company, 15 million is probably the better of when you look for a, a full-time CRO if they're really doing full-time CRO work, managing several layers of leaders beneath them, that's where they can be the most effective. Interesting. So what you're saying is it basically to help uh, smaller companies get more bang for the buck. Yeah. And on that note, I think this was great bang for the buck and for everybody's time today. Ed. Thank you so much. And like wonderful. you said, you know, you've learned a lot from others and thank you. I've learned a lot from you today. It was wonderful having you. Yeah. Wonderful. Wonderful. Thank you. And and again, I'll kind of give a quick shout out to what you're doing and the product you're providing. I think it's a valuable solution that a lot of teams need. And I'm glad to see companies like you and the marketplace. It's if I had something like this 15 years ago, I can't imagine where I would be. So I'm glad you're doing what you're doing. Keep fighting a good fight. Thanks. Cool.